This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast discussing all things on the intersection of energy and finance. I am here today with Lauren Rusekis to talk about the European gas crunch or or European gas crisis or energy shock or whatever it is. Um, But before we go into that, Lauren, how are you? Thank you very much, Hill. I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad to have you back. And I was thinking of you uh, this week because the NBA season has just kicked itself back off. And I know you to be a big NBA fan. It's very exciting. Yeah, I, I. it's hard because I'm trying. I live in London and I'm trying to get to sleep at a normal hour. And then if I stay up a little too late, then some of the games start. And it's tempting to, to, to watch uh, NBA League pass on my iPad. And uh, so I'm resisting. I try to wake up in the morning, choose a game watch the condensed highlights and, and and that's it so 20 minutes in the morning yeah that's uh i guess a good way to do it we, we've got the opposite uh you know different league different sport but here in the u.s with, with soccer we're, we're able to watch it in the yes. morning which works very well for parents who need to go to sleep early on saturdays <laughs> absolutely so all right well so so on the gas story or the energy story that this is you know that there's a the cliche or the, the the line that may you live in interesting times and, and I think that right now we are living in interesting times as it comes to, to energy um, the it's becoming yeah I think what last week two weeks ago the headline um, on the economist was uh, what would appear to be a glass flame referring to the energy shock there's power shortages in China there's gas price craziness for, for uh, you know, an untechnical word um, in Europe and all of this before kind of peak winter demand in a lot of these uh, locations. So, so can you kind of set the stage of what's happening in, in Europe right now and the general mood on the street and you know, lay it out for people who haven't been watching the, the details? Sure. Well, what, what's happened, is, I mean, I think you've set the scene correctly. I mean, what's happened is that after a year in 2020, where gas prices in Europe collapsed to extremely low levels, uh, down to sort of three three dollars per per million BTU, that was obviously driven by by COVID and oversupply of LNG in the global market, which led sort of that excess LNG to find its way into the European market and and push prices down to very low levels. Then we've seen throughout 2021, and it really, you can almost go month by month and look at the price of the the TTF, the major European gas hub, and and really month by month through the first quarter, through the second quarter more quickly, those TTF prices started to drift up to what one would consider kind of sort of normal levels. And then in July, uh, August and September, breaking through that and reaching quite extraordinary levels. I mean, levels that we have never seen before in Europe in U.S. dollars per million BTU terms above $30 up to $35 at at their peak. So this was definitely a shock, not just for gas prices in Europe, but also for electricity prices, because electricity prices are set at the margin and and gas generation is the marginal uh, source of electricity. So it's had 
much bigger impact through its influence on electricity prices as well. And with that, you know, political impact and political reactions as well. And what you mentioned kind of the, the gradual move uh, until things started to, to, to go bananas. What, what Was there a single catalyst or was there just kind of a, a waking up uh, among gas buyers? Oh, oh, my God, we need to do something. I think there's a lot of factors. Little by little, the market and the LNG market got tighter and tighter. I think the the story begins to a large extent with the LNG market, where we had, if you look at our own internal assumptions about what was going to happen in 2021 in the LNG market, what's happened is that demand has surprised on the upside, largely because of strong LNG demand in China, also in other countries in Asia, but China leading the way. And then supply of LNG has been lower than expected, not for any one big reason, but for a series of small reasons, you know, outages at various liquefaction places, six or seven liquefaction uh, facilities around the world because of lack of supply or technical problems or things like that. So you added it all up, the LNG market was getting tighter and tighter, and that directly translates into what's happening in European hub prices. And then that set the scene for what has dominated a lot of the sort of press coverage of this story, which is the role of Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, As prices started to drive higher in Europe because of this tight LNG market, um, if you go back to European gas market reform, I mean, Europe used to have a very boring, not very market-oriented natural gas market. Gas was sold on long-term contracts to monopoly buyers in different countries, and it was sold on an oil linkage. So price of oil can be volatile, of course, but not that volatile. Mm -hmm. Um, And the EU liberalized its gas market. Now you have real gas-on-gas competition, gas prices being set each day, each hour, based on what traders do, based essentially on the, the fundamentals. But there's two sources of supply that really are critical, LNG and Russian pipeline gas. And so as LNG market got tight, and even as prices went higher and higher, Asian buyers continued to outcompete Europe for uncommitted volumes, for spot LNG volumes, driving prices higher and higher. And when that happens in Europe, there's nowhere really to turn except for Russian pipeline gas, because everything else, we've had pipeline flows from Algeria have been quite high, maybe as high as, as they could be. Pipeline flows from Norway are typically at high levels and don't have a lot of flexibility up and down. We've had domestic gas production within the EU gradually declining step by step over some some years. The the shutdown of the Groningen field in the Netherlands, which is just ahead due to seismic activity caused by that field, has had a big negative impact on European gas supply. So as LNG got higher and higher, the market looks toward Russian pipeline supply. And what has happened from the Russian side is that Russia has continued to fulfill all of its contractual obligations. Counterparties of Gazprom have said, yeah, of course, we're we're being fully supplied with with gas as per our contracts. But Gazprom has not taken the opportunity to auction or to place additional gas, additional supply in the market to provide some upward flexibility to the market that could have eased prices. And as I think it became clear that Gazprom wasn't going to sell additional gas, that helped push the prices up more quickly in the, the August and September period. And I, I want to talk a little bit more uh, about Russia and some of the comments um, it made last week or the week before about uh, Nord Stream 2 and, and how that could, could influence the, the volumes. Before I do, how, how about storage? You know, I, I think there's what a lot of storage in the Ukraine or in Ukraine and elsewhere is, are they, at, are we at levels that 
um, are concerning heading into gas or, or, I mean, heading into winter? Yeah, so that's another another factor. Storage levels in the EU, whether you define it as just the EU or EU plus Ukraine, are lower than they traditionally have been going into winter. They're sort of b- below the sort of band of, uh, of five-year storage levels. There's variability, you know, year to year, of course. So they are they are a bit low. And that is definitely part of the one of the factors hanging over uh, over the market. A lot of this, the not all of it, but part of the low storage levels in the EU ha- has been caused by a decision made by Gazprom before prices started to run up. A decision made in the spring by Gazprom to not fill the European storage capacity that it owns or has reserved as it normally would in spring, um, and and that. To us, seemed like a, uh, the thinking was, well, why should we pay higher transit fees now to someone else to refill storage when come winter Nord Stream 2 is going to be operating and we will have a lot of capacity and we'll be able to bring extra gas through Nord Stream 2 instead of bringing gas out of storage. So it looks like that's the calculus that, that they made. But what it has resulted in is Gazprom's influence on storage isn't so high, but that's results in probably two thirds of the the lower than average levels that we see. And that, you know, that definitely hangs over the the market because, you know, the storage, especially if there's a cold winter mm-hmm. and weather is going to be really critical as we head into December, uh, January, February. And when everyone knows there's some weather uncertainty uh, and then they can look at storage levels being not at, not at dangerous levels. We're not talking about something where there's not going to be enough gas and everyone's going to have to shut off their their gas boilers cuz cuz there's no gas. It's not that type of situation. It's just a tight a tight market which drives prices uh prices up. And so okay so, so so talking about Nord Stream 2 the I think it was last week um that, that Vladimir Putin said um that you know that if Nord Stream 2 is approved tomorrow they can increase shipments to Europe the day after tomorrow which is a very simple thing to, to remember. Can, can you explain maybe the complexities in, in some of what's happening with Nord Stream 2 and, and how practical that, that might be? So the pipeline construction, as we know, Nord Stream 2 was initially, the first line was set to be completed in January of 2020. That was blocked by U.S. sanctions, mm-hmm. which uh, initially threatened against the company that provided the pipeline barge which stopped in its tracks under the threat of U.S. sanctions. Those sanctions were strengthened and tightened subsequently. And uh, so after this delay through various workarounds uh, uh, and also then the Biden administration coming in and reaching agreement with Germany that it would not impose sanctions to to stop the project, what we've seen is the, the pipeline now has been completed. So the first pipeline has been laid. The second one is coming. Let's not worry about that. But Nord Stream 2 is two twin 27.5 billion cubic meter capacity pipeline starting in Russia and ending on the German coast. So that first pipeline has been completed and it has now as of uh, a week and a half ago uh, or been filled with gas. So that pipeline, that's that's what uh, I think President Putin means. That pipeline is ready to go. It's filled with gas and it can start operating, you know, on uh, relatively short notice if uh, uh, if the circumstances allow it, and and is it technically speaking, and, and I I guess uh, reserve space speaking, that the, the the pipeline could be filled. You know, is it as quick as a twenty four hour turnaround, or is it a as the the headline suggested? 
I believe so. I mean, that's my understanding. I'm not a, a mm-hmm. pipeline engineer, but the the they started filling the pipeline with gas, you know, I think at the beginning of, of October and they filled it. So that pipeline is it has gas under appropriate operating pressure through the entire length of, of the pipeline. And so that means it's essentially ready to go. And the link, of course, with the onshore pipelines continuing onward to deliver gas from the coast to to customers, those those links have been in place for for some time. And so what's the general feel, you know, in terms of consumers, whether electricity or gas? I mean, how, how close are people paying attention to this? And, you know, especially with, you know, all the attention, COP26 being another big headline in terms of the interesting times that we live in. Uh, where are the consumers pointing fingers, I, I guess, is one way to say it. Well, consumers point fingers at their politicians in their country for the most part, uh, which is why you're seeing politicians all across Europe taking action or at least saying things about about taking action. Uh, one thing that's interesting is that different in different countries, the impact of higher wholesale gas prices or higher wholesale electricity prices is felt differently. And a lot of that depends on what kind of tariff you're on. I live in the United Kingdom where number one, there's a there's a cap imposed by the government. So prices can't rise too quickly. It's interesting, a sort of not not extremely Thatcherite uh, element of our uh, energy market uh, here. And then secondly, a lot of people are in fixed contracts. Mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of people here have locked in a certain price for the next year, regardless of what happens in the wholesale markets. What's happened in the UK is that if you're a small provider, that didn't hedge, you're now going out of business. Right. And if you're a big provider, then you you did hedge and, and and you're sort of more or less okay. In other countries, I think Spain is probably the leading example of this just because of the way that market has developed, uh, uh, the retail market. Um, changes in wholesale prices appear much more quickly and with much more impact on people's checkbooks. And so that's why I think you've had much more, I mean, Spain has been kind of the epicenter of political concern about high prices, both for gas, but then more importantly for electricity. As I said, that's largely set by by the gas price. And so it's different around around Europe and you can go country by country uh, and, and, and say more or less uh, impact based on how it translates into consumers' bills. And a lot of these prices, I mean, the, the, there's the, the immediate impact to consumers or businesses or industry with, with the prices politics is notoriously slow. What, what are the fast things that politicians are thinking about? And I, I assume Europe has some optionality in how it produces its electricity, unlike other countries that may be more reliant on coal and more reliant on something else. Are, are there any easy things that politicians can do right now? Well, there are not. I mean, there's, there's the easy things are either subsidized customers, just give mm-hmm. money to people to make up for the fact that their, their bills are higher. Um, that, of course, has fiscal issues along with that. But we're seeing some of that. I mean, Fr- France, I think, has come out uh, and, and said essentially for citizens under a certain income level who are being hit hard by these, we're just going to cut you a check. So that's one way to do it. Nothing to do with energy markets. Right. Um, in other countries, I know that Spain and, and in some other uh, jurisdictions as well, they're discussing or perhaps imposing, I don't know where it stands uh, right now, um, sort of windfall taxes. It, you know, I mentioned earlier that the electricity wholesale price tends to be set by the gas price. But if you're a generator, if you're a renewable generator, if you're generating based on 
uh, if you're nuclear in, in, in France, coal generator, coal prices have gone up, but not to the same extent, then you're making a lot of money. So windfall taxes on those players who through no fault of their own, just their, their own good, good business. And then market circumstances are making a lot of money, take some of that back for them, which obviously is very nice for politicians because there's no fiscal impact, but of course, everyone remembers and it affects investment decisions in, mm-hmm. in the future when, uh, when governments step in during good times and take back part of the part of the money. So those are the easy things. The hard things are how do we fix European energy markets? And those, of course, and there's there's things being discussed uh, at the EU level, uh, very preliminary proposals being floated and discussed. The French government has come out and said, look, we our electricity generation is based on nuclear which is pretty cheap mm-hmm. on a you know certainly on a short short run basis our customers shouldn't be paying prices based on the marginal cost of gas fire generation in germany essentially but that's what a single market based electricity market in the eu means so there's but but then how do you and the same same can be said about the gas business i mean a lot of people i mean russian officials have have said it for for sure but a lot of people in in europe it struck them that hmm you know, back in the days when we had oil-linked prices that translated into gas sales prices very slowly, with sort of a, a three-month lag, and it was a it was a weighted average of oil product prices over the preceding six or nine months. That was a quite calm and and quiet market. Wouldn't it be nice if we had that right now? Of course, last year when the market was living extremely low gas prices, people would have complained about high oil linked prices. So there's a number of things being discussed in the gas market. Should there be some strategic storage? Should we uh, dust off a proposal from seven or eight years ago to have somehow Europe be uh, or create a single buyer to mm-hmm. buy gas. So a bunch of things being discussed, but as you pointed out, real fundamental policy changes to the structure of European gas market. Those are going to take years to implement. First of all, you have to come up with ideas, you have to get consensus in the EU and then implement them. I mean, those are not solutions to the current crisis. And what in, in terms of the options, uh, I guess the perception of options that that you mentioned nuclear, which has in many ways been out of favor in terms of headlines and new build for some time. Coal has obviously been out of favor and increasingly out of favor. Those would seem to be, in the grand scheme of things, well understood, relatively easy options. There's also gas, which one can do more with gas. You know, I think volatility is always a knock or often again, often a knock against gas from uh, you know the point of view of planners. Uh, is there any you know, d- direction in terms of these portfolio choices that, that planners are leaning toward. Well, I think I think a lot of a lot of uh, reactions in terms of how should this affect energy policy are are people talking their own their own book. Mm-hmm. If you're strongly in favor, which is pretty much the consensus in Europe, of uh, net zero and and rapid decarbonization, then you say, well, look, we've got to get away even faster from these these volatile priced fossil fuels and and go toward a cheap and clean wind and solar. If you're from the legacy industries, you'll say, well, look, this is the danger uh, of part part of the issue with electricity prices. I've focused on the gas price, but but uh, the variability of 
uh, wind output for certain mm-hmm. periods of time was a big deal in, in in northern Europe as well. And so if you're from the gas industry point of view, you're saying, well, this just emphasizes how important gas is in partnership with renewables to to make sure that we, you know, we're have other sources of uh, of supply for for wind renewables uh, without long duration batteries uh, fully established at low cost at this point, that that's necessary. So we'll see what comes out of it. I do think from the gas industry point of view, this has not helped the image of the gas industry. I think that European consumers and European politicians have never seen price volatility and high prices such as we see today. And if you had asked people, people would have said, well, that that can't happen. But now we've seen that it can't happen. So I do wonder if this isn't going to be um, in the sort of medium medium to long term, somewhat negative for, for gas in Europe. Does it change the conversation all around coal or, or particularly nuclear? I assume the conversation on coal doesn't change particularly ahead of COP26. Yeah, the conversation on coal doesn't doesn't change. On nuclear, there's been a, a debate. There's something called the taxonomy, uh, which is a word describing what types of energy will be qualify for consideration as clean as clean energy under EU programs and rules. And there's been a big debate about both gas and nuclear as to whether it should be included. And that is still open. But I think the recent events have increased support for the idea of nuclear as a clean source of energy. And of course, it is a low carbon source source of energy that has other issues and different different uh, groups and, uh, and different people have different different views on that. But I would say it strengthens slightly the case for nuclear and perhaps weakens slightly the case for natural gas. Well, OK, so, so, so in that weakening for, for, for natural gas, one of the, uh, I guess, kind of the, the head scratchers for, for me in this is Europe, your, Europe sits in a place well advantaged to accept other people's gas, right? Between you've got Russia, you've got big discoveries in the Eastern Mediterranean, a big discovery in the Black Sea. Uh, then there's you know East Africa, there's Mauritania and Senegal and, and North Africa. So, so from a known gas deposit position, a lot of this relying on LNG to monetize, you're, you're in a gas long position and it's often said or always said that the best cure for high prices is high prices. How can we think of that longer term knowing that you can't turn an LNG plant on tomorrow, right? That that, that there's a whole process involved with it. Yeah. Well, I, I think first of all, you know, one interesting question and one thing that's being discussed is whether in terms of LNG should Europe, and I don't know if that means the EU on, on some level or just European buyers of gas, should they rely less on the spot market and more on long-term contracts? Mm-hmm. Um, big difference between Asia and Europe is that the share of spot gas in the Asian LNG supply is relatively low, whereas in Europe, it's relatively high. Customers who in, in Europe, and there's some of them that have long-term contracts for LNG, they're, they're getting that LNG. Maybe the prices are linked to hubs and are 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 high, but it's at least it's at least coming. So one wonders if there's not going to be a shift toward more less reliance on the LNG spot market. Um, but the decisions about LNG go or no go on liquefaction projects, whether it's in Africa or, or or elsewhere, you know those are going to be made based on financing availability and perceptions of the global LNG market and global. Uh, LNG prices, I would say, more than specifically what's happening in Europe. And of course, one thing, and this is what the ENP industry will will say, and of course, there's, you know, there's a lot to this. 
the world still needs gas and that gas is not going to be available without companies taking FID and investment flowing into development of new gas and in, in some cases development of liquefaction. But with the ESG environment turning against fossil fuels, raising that money and financing those projects and financing them on the basis of a, a 25 or 30 year life is becoming increasingly difficult. So as a lot of people have pointed out, there's a gap between the ambition of where we're going to be in 25 years and then how things go between now and then uh, and how rocky the road might be in terms of uh, volatility of, uh, of fossil fuel prices. I mean, I can see a, you know, almost a battle, you know, in request between uh, batteries and, you know, if gas is being positioned as a, a resilience would there need to be, let's say, all those LNG plants come on? Do we also need to invest in storage, or does the storage capacity exist to maintain um, that resilience that money directed at batteries might offer in, in, in a competing press release? Hmm. Well, I haven't thought of it in those terms. It's an interesting way to to put it. Um, I mean, I think that storage is being discussed a lot in the context of the current gas situation in the EU. I think generally there is a lot of storage, more discussion, or I think the rational discussion is focused on how we better use the storage we have to underpin security of supply rather than building more storage because it's expensive. It's very mm -hmm. expensive. In terms of batteries, you know, that's obviously that's one of the main focuses of investment and and we'll see what the technology brings in terms of uh, uh, of changing that but obviously as battery costs come down for long duration uh, or as other energy storage methods are developed and of course hydrogen is uh, to some mm -hmm. extent a energy storage a way to store electricity as well as a fuel that that will you know be more and more part of the part of the calculus these are the long-term considerations that these planners are having to, to, to balance. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's you know, at a certain point, it's, you know, I forget, I think the quote has been attributed to, to many different people, but it's, it's, it's very hard to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it's also, uh, the, the other kind of related quote is a bad plan is better than no plan. Uh, and so it's, uh, uh, hopefully there, there's a good plan or, or at least a, a plan of some sort coming out of this. But before, you know, but before I let you go, when we're thinking about the immediate term, it's October 25th, uh, prices have been going crazy. We're heading into a, a period of colder weather, you know, whether unseasonably cold or not, we'll find out in a few weeks. Should people be prepared for things to get better or things to get worse or, or for things to stay the same? Well, I think the big uncertainty and, and, and what I think a lot of people would like to see is that, is that, that Russia while continuing to meet its contractual obligations, sells additional gas, regardless of how it's delivered, um, sells additional gas through the, the auction platform that it, that it has available, and A, puts more supply in the market, and B, sends a signal that more supply is, is forthcoming. There's a number of factors going into that. There's politics. It could be related to what happens with, with Nord Stream 2, and it also factors into how much gas can Russia uh, actually deliver, where there have been questions about Russia's ability to, to deliver gas. But we think in general that absent extremely cold weather in Russia, but we do think that Russia d would have the capacity to deliver some additional gas more than it, than it has been delivering. So I think that's the big thing to watch and how uh, those decisions get made. 
we'll have to just watch. I mean, one one thing that we focused on in a recent paper is that there's a lot of discussion that Nord Stream 2 requires regulatory certification. I won't go into the details, but this is a, a very specific process that takes time. It's being considered, its application to be uh, certified as a transmission operator is being considered in Germany, gets reviewed in Brussels, and then comes back to Germany. The earliest that could happen is, is in any case, after winter, probably April. However, under German law, it appears, and there's been discussion of this in the German press, that the pipeline has all the technical permits and approvals that it needs, and it could simply just start operating without certification. It would be subject to fines. This would be sort of not, you know, it would be an infraction of mm-hmm. the rules. And the regulator has said, in that case, the the, the operator of, of the pipeline would be subject to fines. But it would be flowing gas. And if that meant more gas, then that would be actually very much of a relief to uh, to the market and to, to consumers. So we'll see how that plays out. To, to try to guess how that will play out gets you into uh, very <laughs> deep into German German regulations and permitting uh, procedures and, and and all of that. So I don't I don't have a guess, but that's certainly something to watch. Okay. Well, I, I will take that answer as one of leaning toward optimism um, and, and hopeful that that Europe doesn't head into an, an abnormally cold weather, uh, cold, yeah. cold winter that that makes it all, all the more difficult for policymakers and buyers everywhere. That's for sure. And weather is always something that people don't spend a lot of time. I mean, of course, all of our projections we do on a weather normalized basis. So supply and demand and pricing is all based on weather. I mean, of course, weather is never normal. Um, right. But it is. this is probably the winter more than any winter in recent memory where, you know, the weather is going to be very significant determ- determining how things, uh, how things go. So despite my negative feelings about global warming, I am hoping for a <laughs> more, more warm, warmer than average uh, winter, at least this winter. Uh, no, warmer than average winter, yes. All right. Well, well thanks very much for, for, for joining me uh, again. And, and I am uh, I am optimistic and hopeful, but we'll see what, what happens. And, and these will continue to be interesting times, I suppose. Great. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Hill. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.